Nuclear testing awakens an ancient monster from the bottom of the Pacific that destroys ships before making its way to terrorize the population, only to be thwarted with an underwater bomb. No, this isn't Godzilla 1954. This is Kaiju vs. History. It came from beneath the sea. It came from beneath the sea. That is correct, Miles. Uh, this is Patrick uh, with me, as always, my co-host. And we are treated this week to looking at another Ray Harryhausen classic film that was rushed into production after the success of uh, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms and a number of other giant monster movies in the 50s. I think classic should have sarcastic quotes around it. A classic. <laughs> it Came From Beneath the Sea was released in July of 1955, a double feature with the film Creature with the Atom Brain, which I've never heard of. <laughs> also, some, sometimes the uh, the big movie is, is paired with like a C movie, the B movie with a C movie. <laughs> well, and, and we're going to we're going to discover that a lot of the movies in the American canon that we cover for the next, I would say, 25 years from this point on, they were mostly drive-in movies. Uh, a lot of times you would have a couple of of niche theaters but a lot of these movies this week's episode next week's episode they were they were driving classics and they were often part of double features some were complete genre double features and some were like here's your monster movie and then here's your weird teen exploitation movie well yeah we're gonna actually see that next week <laughs> that's right. the double feature with uh next week's movie spoiler but yeah it's so interesting that that was how the film studio developed the released uh, release schedule for these films I'm trying to think of these kind of movies existing within a movie theater and sometimes this film and uh, next week and some others you know so much of this the action is outside in the open and i think seeing it on a giant silver screen outside probably added to some of that effect uh, especially if it was the first in a double feature, maybe you're seeing it just at sundown, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and well, getting and, some and, of those action scenes. And as we're going to talk about, there is something in the way that these movies are paced that seem directly tailored to the tribe, mm -hmm. and especially for teenagers. And we'll get into that a little bit, but it's interesting to me because at this point in time, Godzilla hasn't released in the mainstream American canon yet. But there is something in the air. As we talked about with Beast from uh, 20,000 Fathoms, you know, the idea of nuclear testing mm -hmm. and and radiation in in nature has I think caught on with everybody. Everyone is is into this yeah. whole atomic age idea. And you know, we talked a lot about the differences between Godzilla and them. And it's interesting to see that like a lot of that stays consistent there isn't a whole lot of thought into some of these movies other than you know here's your radiation here's your monster and i think for me what makes the american movies uh and we're going to talk about this specifically not kaiju films is because they don't do anything to treat their monsters as interesting other than being big things 
I mean, that's definitely one of the defining factors of this monster in particular. It, the so-called it of the title, that it is, I mean, it's stated later on to just be a large octopus, but a creature, you know, we've never seen before, even though (laughs) we'll talk about this. It doesn't have eight legs, doesn't have eight appendages. Very famously, they they only had the space on the model and the budget to animate five at once. And even on the poster, I think there's only four uh, shown, four or five of the, the legs. When it comes out of San Francisco Bay and grapples the Golden Gate Bridge support structure, about ninety percent of the creature is out of the water, and you can see at its midway point are two legs, and there are two appendages or arms on top of it, and that only leaves the the single one. And I think in in some of the underwater shots we get later as well. But yeah, I mean it, that is a defining feature. It isn't given a lot of you know the emotion, or uh, I mean it, it's hard to make a, a cephalopod <laughs> like this kind of uh, a, a, a character more than just a monster. And the movie does try to, at least in a lot of points, pose it so that it the octopus isn't entirely on the screen. So you can kind of be like, oh, well, his other legs must be. Oh, elsewhere. yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's how they do it very well here. The vast majority of scenes until the very end of the film, much like the beast from 25,000 fathoms is just like, one second or two or, or you know, a, a scene with the a single tentacle transposed in the background. I don't know how many scenes in this film are just that one tentacle shot kind of used over and over. Yes. Or <laughs> I think sometimes they have it going vertical and sometimes they have it horizontal, just showing all the, the suckers and, and things like that. Yeah, th- this movie obviously in the exact same vein, uh, I, I know it's going to get old in this episode, but we're going to talk about the beast from 20,000 fathoms a great deal because this is a vehicle for Ray Harryhausen's art to appear on the screen. And he took about 20 minutes of the film and was able to create stop motion animation. And the script was written by George Worthing Yates. And it was specifically made around the idea that the Columbia Pictures head honcho had of, you know, what about a radioactive octopus? You know, it was made to really showcase those stop motion effects of Ray Harryhausen. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's it's served as a vehicle to get box office numbers. And, you know, it worked for this movie. This movie had a hundred fifty thousand dollar budget and made one point seven million dollars. Uh, we're going to um, talk about George Worthing Yates, the, the writer of this film, uh, a little bit more in the future, as he, he also was accredited story credit for them. We didn't mention him a couple weeks ago, but he's also credited on The Amazing Colossal Man. Uh, he has a writing credit on King Kong versus Godzilla. I'm not sure if that's just the American release of the film, like for the script. But yeah, and he he had a hand in a lot of very famous science mm-hmm. fiction movies earth with the versus the flying saucers is a big one that is kind of one of the quintessential yeah. you know sci-fi alien movies of the 50s and you know he would kind of go on to stay within that genre 
as far as yeah i would imagine that he had a hand in writing maybe the localization for king kong versus godzilla i believe that's the case i obviously i don't think he well they i mean we'll get to it when we get into the history of that movie 1962 but that is still seven years away believe it or not from the release of it came from beneath the sea which you know, I mentioned um, I, I wrote this week's Stinger intro as kind of a joke, but it's interesting how many similarities. Like you said, this came out. I, I think Godzilla might have actually shown in its original Japanese and like art houses in I, that, 1955. That's what I was wondering if it like hit, you know, a couple of of very specific types of theaters. Well, it's interesting how much interplay there was between Hollywood and movie studios all over the world. You know, obviously. Hollywood was the hub and, you know, really pushed forward a lot of the technical aspects as well as just the studio system was copied and and transplanted even to Japan. So they would they would send out movies to other countries, even if it wasn't going to get a release there. But, you know, to try and get international financers and things like that. And the reverse was also true. So probably some studio said saw Godzilla that early and, you know, we're deciding on whether or not to bring it over. And after the, the boom of creature features, like it came from beneath the sea, that probably affected their decision to the following year to, to bring Godzilla King of the monsters and, and reshoot some, some elements of it. But more than likely there was no direct connection between Godzilla in this film, as this was in production earlier in 1955. But yeah, lots of similarities. We've got a radioactive ancient being in the depths who uh, they they say it was probably awakened by atomic testing in the Midway Islands, I believe, in the film. But it cuts a path of destruction, destroys a major city, and you get scientists and military working together to create a bomb and a plan to destroy it. There's even that line that one of the reporters asks, like, you say this came from the bottom of the oceans. Like, are there more of these things? <laughs> Just like in right, Godzilla? I mean- like, yeah, that, and that's the thing is like, there, that would always be my question because you, you can't <laughs> imagine there's just, just one of these things, unless it's some yeah. sort of like special deity or guardian type of situation, as you sometimes see in some of the Toho kaiju films, mm-hmm. these, you got you to think there's more of these guys kicking around. And I really appreciate the, the historical context. I can talk about like kind of krakens and things like that and say in the 13th century, it for 30 years was attacking ships in like where they say it was somewhere in europe like the danish had stories about this this giant creature and the flemish i was kind of hoping they would lean more into it and make it more crackeny yeah yeah i mean that's i think what we're supposed to be led to believe but it's so interesting they don't give it a name besides it and they don't say the word octopus in this movie until like 45 minutes in <laughs> like really like when they, the the sailors who get attacked on their ship first start describing it they they point to the uh stethoscope earpieces of the doctor and it's like oh it's like that it's like that's not what everyone knows what a tentacle is you know right right i don't think squid and octopi are that rare of a creature especially if you work on a ship you know <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like there, there's 
there's a lot of logical shortcuts taken <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> yeah, that, that's probably true. But yeah, I mean, we, we can talk about the, the production history of this film, but it's very similar to Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, you know, just basically came up with an idea and gave the director, Robert Gordon, you know, a team, a, a script, you know, thrown together and got them shooting out in they, they shot on location at San Francisco and in other places in California, of course. Um, the the idea for it came from producer Charles Schneer, very similar to Godzilla, where a studio head had this idea about a giant monster attacking and, you know, got the team together to make it a a possibility. And supposedly he was inspired, of course, by the hydrogen bombs. I think I said midway. It was Marshall Islands testing. And that was uh, what is brought up in the film. Yeah, um, I guess we, uh, we we won't have too, too much to say about the history of this film outside of perhaps. I, I mean, I, I've written a lot of notes here, Miles, you can see. Yeah, I mean, most of them are comparing it to the piece from 20,000 Fathoms. Yeah, I mean, there's just I mean, some of these movies and that's why we we kind of warned early on after Godzilla that, you know, some of these movies, we're going to have short episodes. We're not going to have a ton uh, to say about the production. And uh, sometimes, (laughs) in my opinion, we're not going to have a ton to say about some of these movies. Mm -hmm. And with with this one, I think that uh, I don't know, I. I, I I wrestle with some of my my opinions about this one because I I tend to often be you know the most friendly of of reviewers amongst you know our group of friends and mm. so when I when I feel the opposite I try to like take a step back and and evaluate like what really didn't work for me so I'm not coming off you know negative for the sake of being negative mm-hmm. and I think for me what this movie really lacks is is heart and passion specifically <laughs> you know what we we talk about it in a lot of kaiju films and the things that make the best ones work is multiple people really putting in 110 percent. yeah i Whether feel like the actors are sleeping through this movie oh my goodness can <laughs> i mean i invite people to watch it because it does story-wise kind of have a better flow to me actually then beats from 20,000 fathoms, but yes, there is less than zero chemistry between our three main actors. in So, the movie. so yeah, let, let's get into that a little bit because that was some of the, the biggest problems I had with this film is it's, it's pacing and narrative. This thing Ooh, is boy laboriously paced. So the, well, the first part I would say the first act, especially suffers a great deal because we have a very static story starting in this atomic uh, submarine where we see commander Pete Matthews played by Kenneth Toby uh, for like five minutes. It seems like just kind of shooting joshing with his subordinates and they changed the music in the submarine and looking through the, the porthole until finally we get an off-screen attack by, you know, of course, what turns out to be it, this monster, who I think with a better director and storytelling, that could have been a much tenser and shorter scene of like something has grabbed hold of the yeah one of the most advanced weapons in the entire world at this time. Yeah, um, I, I like the setup for this. I really, it, uh, really did. Just doesn't 
doesn't work. <laughs> I, well, so here's the thing is, and I, I have to at least point to the writing because the little movie scroll that pops up that kind of in, informs us of like the conditions of the film of like, you know, oh, we've done these atomic testings and we've opened ourselves yeah. to the impossible. All it boils down to is the the scroll basically reads as times is wild, y'all. <laughs> 50s are crazy. Like, yeah, it's the atomic age. You know, nothing would be surprising if something crazy happened. Like th- that that is the 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 mode that you're supposed to be be into when we open up. And I I'll give it this, while I think it's very clumsily handled both by the writer and director, it's a decent enough start for this movie. Yeah, yeah, I mean it does okay and it does what a lot of uh, monster films I think get a lot of credit for, which is don't show the monster in the third the first act. Don't, yeah, got to wait for a reveal. And that reveal works very well in the it's destroying a ship. And obviously you've got great Ray Harryhausen effects of these tentacles rising out of the ocean, you know, a hundred feet out of the ocean towering over this, this toy ship, and then eventually latching onto it and bringing it down as people are jumping out the sides that that works well. Yeah. Harryhausen's effects definitely save this movie for me. I mean, we don't see that until I think about 27 minutes into a 79 minute feature. Yeah. So and it's right on the cusp of that. The end of the first act beginning of the second, which, you know, if there were more build up in the first act, it would, it would probably. Uh, yeah. It's kind of way better. it happens. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then we get the, the most wet noodle bland <laughs> characters i think we've seen so far on this podcast so i will i will give some credit to to the writing especially for professor leslie joyce played by faith i want to say her name correctly uh demerge faith marie demerge as she is touted for for the first time a a female character as the absolute you know head of her field she is a marine biologist and that they mentioned like there's one other great marine biologist and he's dead. So, you know, she is, she's not an assistant. She is not a research fellow. She still doesn't yeah. have her doctorate. at least. Yeah. I, not, I, she's not called Dr. Joyce, but I was excited about that. And then they put her in this weird submissive relationship oh, and with you know, I, Dr. I, John Carter of Mars. <laughs> well, I was <laughs> Dr. John Carter. Yeah. D- D- Donald Curtis, please. John Carter and I thought at first they were in a relationship. She seemed very this devoted. This movie to does him. not make it clear. It and is very confusing, and then it turns into it's like very a, weird, a very odd kind of open relationship where, like, because um, she's seeing uh, Commander Pete. Commander Pete, they're in Hawaii. It's very romantic. He forces a kiss on her and she goes back and tells John about it. He's like, oh, did you enjoy it? It's like, yeah. oh, wait, I'm wait. Just like, I, I, I don't understand. And I mean, I don't to expect be fair, the treatment of the female characters to get much better for the next couple decades. I'm not I mean, that surprised. But at the same time, my reaction is still kind of like, who thought this was character work well we we had a scene between the before where matthews was asking about like her relationship status and and you know, she's how as does, possible how does she and you know mix pleasure with work and it like i said less than zero charisma if they even had zero some of those scenes might yeah. have worked out but very similar to beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms i'm sorry to say but the interplay between those characters just 
doesn't work. It doesn't fill the space in as well as, you know, we actually see them doing science for a, a, a span of this film in, in the for most of this movie. second act. And it's like, this is not uh, <laughs> interesting to watch and, you know, convincing. Oh, man. But the only thing that like absolutely falls flat in this movie for me, and there's a couple things that fall flat, but absolutely is when they go and interview the survivors of the the shipwreck which i don't i don't even remember the the name of the ship but and the, for some reason they put a a subplot in where the the sailors don't want to be perceived as crazy saying they saw this giant octopus rising out of the ocean so she has to try and seduce Dr. Joyce ha- or, or Leslie Joyce has to seduce one of the sailors and convince him yeah, to tell her what she saw. It's Th- a weird scene because also everyone's listening in while she does this. Yeah. And it's just like, this is the most filler part of, of the film. Which So this this brings me to the, the drive-in nature of it. I feel like the studio absolutely knew that if they had Harry House making the creature, they just yeah. need someone to bang out something and they could they could grab this cash. And if you put it on the uh, genre double feature, then you get the kids or the teenagers who are, you know, going out on their dates and they're really more focused on their dates, except when you have the one or two scenes in the movie of the creature so that people can react to it and then go back to their business. And, and the way this is paced, I think backs up my, my reading of this because you have like 20 minutes of absolutely nothing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said, it, it's very similar thing happened in the uh, beast from 20,000 fathoms. I think you're right. There's just some filler space thrown in there so people can go to the bathroom, <laughs> grab another bucket of popcorn, that kind of sure, thing. Sure. Um, go to the bathroom. That's that's it. Yeah. Or, you know, <laughs> snuggle up with your sweetie and talk about uh, everything that happened during during the school week. Uh, but yeah, boy, howdy. Oh, Patrick, you you are as pure as the driven snow. <laughs> uh, snuggle up with your sh- sweetie. It's 1955 miles. Get your head out of the gutter. Um, I mean, we can start another podcast where I can disprove that right now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's look at the the baby boom of the 1950s and and see how many people we have, we have were a born. A lot of wild teen movies that came out this time. In what, fact, next next week's going to be double featured with one. <laughs> what is uh, uh, was the population growth nine months after this movie came out? Let's take a, take a look. Um, I will say. This does have a lot of kaiju, you know, monster movie tropes in the film and very hard line. We've got, you know, the scientist military character working together to figure out how to take out this foe. And there's a lot of respect given to the scientists, much like Ashiro Hondo has in Godzilla. At at first, you know, the military is a little hesitant to, you know, kind of believe them. But after some some backup, just like in them and it came from or, or uh, beats from 20,000 fathoms. Once there's like a, some extra backing, you know, in, in 20,000 fathoms, you have the scientists character, the, the doctor who, you know, goes to the military and it's like, Oh no, they, they saw the same creature. I believe this is true. Then the movie kind of picks up and they start hunting it. You got some great B footage or not B footage, uh, great stock footage of warships, you know, dropping depth charges, just like in Godzilla. And yeah, it, it it works in in some similar ways. Uh, very similar to the end of Godzilla. We have a, a scene where they have to. I was a little confused by this. They have to set off the bomb by 
So I, by diving I, I, underneath. I really wasn't sure how that was. Yeah, the, the way this all worked, it. I just. Yeah, I'm so not going to lie. I stopped caring. <laughs> well, I enjoyed that they brought back the atomic submarine at the end of the movie. You know, a little payoff for the beginning uh, where we see those same characters coming back. But they shoot the jet propelled torpedo into the octopus, into it. But it doesn't detonate. And then they have to do some dives. And both the main male characters are underwater in a very terribly decorated underwater diving pool somewhere on probably the studio lot. And um, th- those scenes don't look wonderful, unfortunately, but Harryhausen's yeah. monster, you know, have a great shot of the, the scientist, Dr. John Carter swimming past its eye and it opens up and she shoots so that, it right there. That sequence, all of the special effects in in the kind of attack on the on the city, and then when they're underwater and he's diving in to personally take care of the octopus, I thought all that looked great. It's it was the first. I'm not gonna lie, the first time in the movie I was actively engaged. I thought, okay, this is this is good looking. I like how they're handling the underwater sequences. They look nice despite how technically limited they were. I I really appreciate the the special effects team's ingenuity when they were given the chance to show off. Yeah. Do you do you have a, a favorite scene in the movie? I mean, you just kind of described it. <laughs> oh, right, underwater scene. Um, yeah, the auto I thought the underwater sequence at, at towards the end of the film was really really great. There is an attempt to kind of make it similar. I don't well, I guess not because maybe yeah. they hadn't seen the film, but similar to Sarazawa's sacrifice in Godzilla. Yeah, but both the main characters here live, and it's like, all right. Yeah, well, it's it's just they couldn't even do, like a main character dies in them. Like they couldn't even get that yeah, right. They couldn't commit to that. Despite that, I think visually it was super interesting, and it was at a time where I was. I mean, I was. I had my interest had been gone. So like seeing this <laughs> aspect, I was like, okay, the Harryhausen's octopus looks amazing. I think that you know that scene is just visually interesting to look at, and. Have to, having spent what almost fifty minutes with nothing interesting to look at, it was really nice. You can you can edit this movie down to a forty five minute banger of a film. You know, you can uh, edit this movie down to a fifteen minute short that would be awesome. <laughs> just all the special <laughs> effects scenes. I, I will say, not just that. You could you could you could trim all the human stuff to about a good <laughs> like six minutes if that the the golden gate bridge is obviously the major set piece it is yeah. why this movie was created to highlight harry Housen's effects and it's done so in great effect and not only his stop motion but you've got great miniature work like the 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 bridge looks wonderful you got cars being crushed very similar to to some of the great action we see in the beast from 20,000 fathoms crushing a police car. I love that scene, but uh, even more so, I love the tentacle just laying like 20 people out, you know, just just squishing people in the streets of San Francisco. That kind of reminded me of maybe some action we would see in in something more like a horror movie like The Blob. But yeah, I mean, the special effects here, they work. They work great. You know, obviously we've talked a great deal about what <laughs> didn't yeah, work we've mostly talked movie. about what didn't work for this movie and it it bums me out because i i really like harryhausen's work and i think that you know we don't get a ton of giant octopus movies yeah i was about to say i mean i i, I racked my brain to to think of one specifically i can um, think of two 
yeah, I mean, you've got like giant undersea creature features, but not a lot of them where the octopus or the giant squid are like the main focus. So if you are looking for giant octopi, you are, unfortunately, you have three choices. (laughs) You've got an Italian horror film from 1977 called uh, Tentacles. Oh, yeah, that, that sounds familiar. And so, I mean, because we're not focused on giant animals, we're probably not going to watch it for the, the canon of this show, but we may do something special to do something outside of just the core podcast, maybe a, a special viewing or something if it's available. Yeah, but this this is this is different. This is a radioactive five tentacled uh, octopus. Uh, well, I, f- I feel like the one in tentacles is also I don't know if it's radio. I know it's giant. Uh, right. Right. Um, right. So you also have a film called Octopus in 2000, which also had a sequel. It's a directed video, a directed television film. Um, and yeah. then you have the magnum opus by Asylum, Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus. <laughs> yeah, not to not to mention Sharktopus and other creatures yeah, like you that. Have, yeah, tangential octopus stuff. But yeah, I mean, I guess you have the Portuguese Man of War in Sphere. Um that scene is well, no. So the, in in Sphere, there is a reference to a gi- well. There, there's yeah. There there's that that is the actual monster from Twenty Thousand Leagues because they were reading the book and they summoned it with or Samuel Jackson summoned it with his mind <laughs> powers. So it, it it attacks their undersea lab. But yeah, that's not like the main feature of that. Right. Movie, sadly, absolutely. There's a giant yeah, octopus it- in King Kong versus Godzilla which is a live octopus that they had on the set in uh, once again, that's seven years from now, but yeah, outside those deep sea creature features that you mentioned, a lot, not a huge legacy for this movie outside of, of course, what it is. It's a vehicle for Harry Housen's effects. Yeah. And especially once the seventies come along, your, your, your deep sea creature features are mostly going to be shark based. Yeah, yeah, there are lots of sharks from here on out. But I I mean, to be honest, I'm one that I'm much more scared of those deep sea creatures, the giant squid, giant octopus. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, um, what was it? The anglerfish, the one that has a little light bulb over its. Oh, yeah. Head? I mean, that's just just the stuff of nightmares. But growing up, there was in the uh, the Natural History Museum in New York, a life size replica of a a giant squid just like hanging on the ceiling of their, their oceanography kind of wing. And that thing terrified me. It was, it was so huge. Um, They put it up against a, like right next to a whale, a giant whale, I think. And boy, howdy. Uh, I I think the angler fish is pretty terrifying. (laughs) Oh yeah. Uh, Critics at the time praised this movie for its special effects, but uh, (laughs) many, a reviewer, definitely but like we're calling out said the movie was almost documentary style in the scene that it's, where we didn't dry. see the monster yeah. is, is pretty pretty dry <laughs> yeah it was a huge hit though mm-hmm. i think like the second or third best-selling film in the u.s in 1955 it, the budget was 150,000, and it almost made two million uh variety weekly yeah Posts that 1.7 million for for that year, which is you know great returns. I, I want to say, did that do better than the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, or is that on on par? Uh, I feel like it might be on par. I, I didn't have the information 
right off the top of my head. But I'm, I'm, <laughs> like I'm looking we... at my, my notes. No, it's not even close. Uh, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms cost $50,000 more, but made $5 million. Oh, yeah. So a little diminishing returns on that, but still profit, though. Still a success. And like I said, I, I, I think the effects here are um, maybe even better than than beast and in, in some aspects oh, absolutely I, I i think i think they are in in a number of ways there's some cool city scenes in beasts but i think the overall look of the monster and the the city miniatures especially the golden gate bridge looked great yeah yeah the the wharf when it comes up out of the the ocean and the flamethrowers have to start like pushing the tentacles back um there's some some great stuff some viewable stuff but yeah should people be watching this let's get into our rating yeah and finish up this movie uh miles we use a one to ten scale here and mm-hmm. each of us individually rate three things our personal enjoyment the technical aspects and then kind of the the general addition that this makes to the the nature of kaiju cinema you know emotional it's evocative responses how it plays in that genre uh, and then we're going to combine our score our individual scores and then combine our each of our scores to get a, a podcast rating for me personal enjoyment this is actually i enjoyed this more than beast for Twenty Thousand fathoms i think it there are parts that definitely drag but <laughs> like harry Housen's other film it is just slightly more watchable. So I gave it an eight out of 10. The parts that worked worked very well, similar to them for me. And I didn't think it was, I was going to enjoy it that much, but I actually did. I, I got through it a lot, a lot faster than, uh, <laughs> than some other movies of this era. So I guess I'm the bad guy. Here. Not so much miles. <laughs> no, no. Um, so here's the thing is in, in terms of my personal enjoyment, I gave it a four. Yeah, I, I thought this movie was mediocre at best and fairly soulless. I thought the movie came alive mm. when Harry Housen's effects came in, which yeah. is going to influence how I thought about it technically. But overall, I thought the film was extremely droll. And, you know, the, the, it felt like they just kind of cashed in to use Harry Housen's special effects as a, you know, come, come look at this, but we're not going to give you much else. Um, similar to, you know, how a lot of people re- review the disaster films of the nineties and two thousands, uh, yeah. especially like Roland Emmerich's films that, that the special effects are the only thing to see. And, and honestly, that that's how, how it is for me. I, I think this film yeah. doesn't have a whole lot else to offer other than Harry Housen's effects. That's why, you know, we we do these individually. We don't talk about our scores before we go in. So for you, this was a disappointing feature and i can totally see that i think a lot of people will have that reaction for me it was it was pretty great i i would say is an eight is great it's not like my favorite <laughs> but w- once again i wasn't a huge fan of the technical aspects of these films until i started going back and really getting into them and ray harryhausen i, I do now want to go back and, and watch all of his other films because it's it's crazy what he's able to do and no one else on the planet right now is really able to match as a kid seeing like uh his greek myth movies yeah yeah and Um, and it was like he did sinbad and i think and did he do class of the titans as well uh the seventh voyage of sinbad he did clash of titans in 81 very yeah like late entry uh, jason and the argonauts is the the one with the skeleton fight yeah colossus incredible work and those images really affected me as a kid so yeah i i think harry housen is i mean a tremendous tremendous talent and 
And that's why I'm, I mean, even though I am a little harsher on the technical side, mostly because the film didn't allow the technical side to really shine. You know, they slashed the budget. The, he's only yeah. on the screen for a little bit. I gave it a six. Be, just just for those those reasons, really, I thought I thought Harryhausen worked extremely well with what he was allowed to do, but mm-hmm. it's still on. I think it's still on par with what he was doing. I gave it slightly uh, less score than Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. There there are some parts that are better, but he just it just seemed on another level in that movie. Um, I gave it an eight. You know, it's very exciting. It's, it's, it's memorable technical achievements here. Um, so much harsher. <laughs> Well, like I, I mean, like I said, we're comparing this to the time to I, I, something I, I, like I have, them, you know, I where it's have, like, oh boy, <laughs> them's also, technical also, effects are pretty sad. I'm not going to lie. I think I also might have a slight, I don't want to say prejudice, but uh, my arms are a little bit more crossed when I see some of these American films in this particular genre, even though, as we've said, these these are not kaiju movies. We're doing this. Yeah. Um, to kind of t- talk about the monster movies of the time as far as the canon. But as we leave the 50s, you know, we're not we're going to be talking about American movies a little bit less, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, well, that is definitely a case. There's an explosion of them and then they just kind of die out, whereas they definitely prosper in East Asia, especially, you know, definitely Japan, Korea, those kind of places. You know, it's funny. I mean, like I said, there is a giant octopus in a Godzilla movie coming up. But yeah, is that a is that a kaiju? Is that a monster? <laughs> is it just a giant sea creature? You know, that's the tell you the what. We'll, we'll we'll visit Toho's website and see if it has a name, and that'll be your answer. <laughs> uh, oh man, I think that one might might do might do. I um, think it might as well. I I, I don't know. We'll we'll have to we'll have to see. I haven't I haven't gotten that far ahead in the canon. But so, what was your cultural emotional score? So that one is definitely is is broken down a little bit. That this is where I'm I'm getting harsher with it because as much as I enjoy this movie, just like Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, it does not really stand out. It is really just like I said, a vehicle for those special effects right here. Has some special effects. Uh, so I I you know for this film's legacy and and kind of like the era it came out uh, as well as. I would say people's emotional response to this kind of story. Uh, I gave it a five out of 10 just didn't, I don't think made as big a splash. It's just one of many of these kind of American monster movies at the time. It doesn't stand out among them as much as I thought them did. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually right there with you. I also gave it a five out of 10. Yeah. I, I think overall I see, you know, the effect it had. And that's the thing I, I see the effect it had on the, American drive-in scene and for American radioactive big bug movie. Mm-hmm. They're not big bug movies, but but big like creature movies. Yeah. And so in in that aspect, you know, it's yeah, it's not bad. It's not great as a as a throwaway afternoon sci-fi fi- picture, you could do worse, you could <laughs> do a lot better. But in terms of viewing it in in the kaiju canon, yeah, it's it it does not have a lot of value for me. Uh, which means your total score is a five. Correct. And mine is a seven averaged out. So that, that brings us to the the podcast score of a six, which I think is very fair. I want to say, yeah, I, I, um, I can, I can, I can live with that. We gave uh, the beast from 20,000 fathoms, both a, a seven. And this is, I think just slightly 
less of a film than the the impact of of uh, Beast. Yeah. So for a final scoring, we you know combine our scores for a total of six out of ten for it came from beneath the sea. Mm. And that is going to do it for this week's episode. Uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Kaiju versus history. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this one uh, in particular. I want, I want to find someone who's this is their favorite movie and, and, and hear what their reaction is well, in this kind of genre or with science fiction in general. That happens a lot. Yeah. But yeah, any other comments or concerns, uh, send us your thoughts at uh, kaiju versus history at gmail.com and email form go on to our website kaiju versus history.com to get ready f- through our next uh week's episode our next installment and that is going to do it miles thank you so much and, and thank you listeners we will catch you next time when we return here to giant radio activated bugs in the desert that is right next time tune in for 1955 where we have History of versus Tarantula. <laughs> <laughs>